don't blame the person who is exposing your own discomfort and insecurity. Instead, lean in and figure out why you're uncomfortable. Where is that coming from? Take responsibility for that and, and do the work, right? Because how much of what people assume and judge is actually based on narratives they were told, not any research they'd done or experiences they'd had. It was just like regurgitated rhetoric that they'd inherited somewhere. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. Welcome back to my regular listeners, and if you're new here, no my, hi to my, you are very welcome. This is a podcast where we hear from people who are doing good in the world, using who they are, their talents, their resources, time, money, whatever, to help to make the world a better place, and in doing so, bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. Today's guest, who's doing just that, is Mike Maishiro. A bit of context that will help if you're not familiar with Bethel Church. Um, they are a charismatic evangelical church in Redding, California, uh, and they're famous for the church music that they pump out prolifically. They also have a Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which hosts over 2,000 students a year from over 60 countries. Mike worked for Bethel, coordinating events, which they did on a huge scale, and he was a teacher of spiritual discernment at the School of Supernatural Ministry until he came out as gay just a couple of years ago, at which point he lost so much of his income, uh, speaking engagements, his friends, and his support structures. You know, so life has changed dramatically for Mike, and we're going to hear a little bit about that in the episode, um, both in the negative context, but also how it's changed for the positive as well. Mike and I talk about how, rather than abandoning his faith, he actually came out because of his relationship with God. We also talk about how he's been treated by those who are supposed to be God's examples of love to the world, and how he now uses the platforms he built while at Bethel to support others who are wrestling with faith and sexuality, or simply asking questions about the faith they've been handed. This is episode 76 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Mike Myashiro. It's a pleasure to be talking to Mike Myshiro today. Kia ora, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, for those who don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from? Yeah, I am from Portland, Oregon, but I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but I spent a lot of my time in California, which is where I kind of my career took off and I became a you know, recognizable human being or whatever. Um, so I, yeah, was at Bethel church in Redding, California. So in the charismatic world, that was a very prominent space yeah. and, uh, I came out as gay there and Bethel is like overtly anti-gay, really harmful to the queer community, um, and proud of it. And I needed to get away from that environment and those relationships in that community. And cause it was just pervasive and everywhere in my entire community was hostile toward, yeah. or like at least unsafe toward queer yeah. people. So. That was a rude awakening and a wild journey, and it landed me in Nashville where I found a mentor that I just needed the support of this person to get out of where I was and learn how to humanize myself and go on that journey. So since then, I you know, started doing a lot of queer advocacy, specifically for people coming out of evangelical spaces, um, helping 
poor victims kind of recover from being dehumanized their whole life and learning how to hate things about themselves that um, they were taught to hate because of ignorance and bigotry and all that. So anyway, that's probably me in a nutshell at this point. Yeah, I mean, Beth, over this side of the world, Bethel's obviously most known for its worship songs. Um, they're, you know, prolifically pumping them out and they're being sung everywhere. You you actually, I mean, you didn't just go to Bethel. You were, like, quite involved there. Do you want to share a little bit about what you were doing there? What was it that you ended up having to move on from? Yeah, totally. So when I went to Bethel, I went there just to be around the church. And then I was like, oh, you know what? A better way to get plugged into this culture and learn about this place is to do, take the school. They have a ministry school. So I went to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry for two years. I actually got kicked out a second year on the last day of school, like seven hours before graduation because somebody outed me and I didn't know and they did not ask many questions and it was really awkward and poorly handled. And anyway... That was pretty traumatizing. Yeah. A couple months later, I went back and was like, what happened here? Because I had several friends in my life who were like, something's wrong. So anyway, they cleaned it up. I got my diploma. We reconciled, if you will. And then I got hired on staff a few months after. Like, ironic- ironically, you know, like this is really yeah. fun. <laughs> I started yeah. working at the church um, in the events department. So I started helping administrate conferences. And Bethel does not play small in the conference world. Yeah. Like, they have 40 events a year. Some of them, you know, thousands of people each. Um, so anyway, I did that for six years. And in that time, I also then got invited to lead mission trips for the ministry school and then to take interns for the school. And I was teaching in the school that kicked me out. I taught on the gift of discernment, um, the discerning of spirits. And that class kind of took off and people like really, the students were very interested in what I had to say. My class just like grew in notoriety and just popularity. And I had my class size just kept growing and which was really fun for me, right? And then I started traveling all over the world. I started getting invited invited to churches and conferences and workshops and seminars, whatever, to teach on spiritual intelligence and the gift of discernment. And so I was kind of making a name for myself in all of that. I didn't know that was going to happen. That wasn't my plan, but it was just what I cared about and the ways that I wanted to contribute. And I was just really well received and it was really fun. <laughs> and I was deeply closeted that entire time. And so um, that was like a warring conflict in the midst of all this, you know, overt public success that I was experiencing. You say you were outed, like you weren't out at that time. No, I confided in a friend. I told her that I struggled with being attracted to men, right? With same sex attraction is how, you know, we would have said it back then. Um, And she was just, she kept trying to get me to pursue basically conversion therapy options that were available in the environment. And I just wasn't interested. It was terrifying. Um, it didn't feel safe, it, you know, all this stuff, but, um, she took my resistance to the, what was offered to me as a failure to be honest or to like pursue wholeness and, and health for myself. And so when we had some rifts in our relationship and some tension, eventually she decided to, you know, share that information because, we were really close for a year and a half. And so her, the leaders she was trying to get involved with were questioning her about our relationship and that came out. So anyway. Yeah. Right. So you were really involved and then you went on a journey to coming out, I guess, to yourself as well as, as well yeah. as um, to others and, and publicly. Right. And, and oh, we won't go into that whole conversation because you've, that's public. You've, you've got that out there already. And so yeah. I can put show notes, uh, links in the show notes to, to help people go and hear that story. But yeah. when I was listening to it, the one of the things that stood out for me most was that you didn't 
give up on your spiritual discernment or, you know, this wasn't about you going, look, I've tried, I've had enough, I'm out of here, I'm just going to do what I want, which is, you know, that's the stereotype that gets thrown at you of what happens when people come out in the church. But your story is one of actually listening, discerning what God might be saying to you. It was something that was part of your spiritual journey, not an abandonment of it. Can can you share just a little bit about about that for you? Sure. Yes. Wow, Andy, I feel so seen. Yes, that was. <laughs> I mean, since coming out, that it turns out that my experience is an exceptional one. But yeah. yeah, the reason I came out was because of my intimacy with God, with the Holy Spirit, is how I would have said that back then, right? Yeah. Um, it was because of that intimacy that I came out to myself, and then consequently everyone else. Um, not in spite of. Um, I actually had, I don't know, nine or ten like deeply profound spiritual encounters with God since I was 18 directly around surrounding my sexuality and God from the beginning had been affirming me as a gay person and defending my sexuality to me. And I just couldn't accept that because the world I was raised in and the theology that I had and the leaders and my family and my cult, my community, just all of it was anti-gay. So I harbored these experiences and these, I would even use the word revelations back then, you know, my language is so different now. So I'm trying to like use the language I had when I went on this journey. But anyway, so I had all this revelation, if you will, about God's love and heart and acceptance for me to the degree that I even to a degree, I actually couldn't accept along the way. It was so intense and overwhelming and too gracious. It was too loving. It was too good. Right. Um, and it was quote unquote, so unbiblical, um, from how I was trained. So that was a huge conflict. I like shouldered for 16 years. Um, so when I finally decided to come out, it was because the final string of experiences I was having with who I know God to be were like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like I couldn't stay in the closet anymore. I just felt it was too implicating. Like it was, I had no out or alibi at this point to continue to deny what I was experiencing from God. Um, and I was at a point in my journey and my process where I was like, okay, I've got all this success and this has been awesome, but it's, I don't want to say empty, but it's definitely missing something significant. Like I don't care about this stuff more than I care about being honest, more than I care about my own authenticity and being connected to myself. And I didn't even have great language for that back then. And I didn't even know how disconnected from myself I even was. I just knew something was wrong. Right. And so in response to these nudgings from the Holy spirit, I went on this journey of like having to accept, I remember the the day it happened, it was like this final thing that took place. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is God talking to me. It's not just me having an emotional journey or me just like processing through stuff. Like the divine is participating in this process and they are not indifferent. They are not ambivalent. God is not uninterested or doesn't care. I've seen some people publish stuff that God doesn't care about your sexuality. And I understand where they're coming from and why they think that I actually, that's not my experience. I think God does care about our sexuality. God cares a lot. Um, and God was very interested in me being a gay man, which is not anything I ever thought I'd be saying out loud. It's so yeah, strange totally. to say it out loud. But it's, I mean, that is my honest confession of me bearing witness to who I know this person to be and what they're like and what they've said. So I finally, like, in that fateful day, like, just had to kind of count the cost, if you will, and weigh out, like, what is this going to cost me? What am I going to lose? Because I knew, I mean, all I was aware of was, loss, you know, in like accepting this. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't keep being, I couldn't keep lying. I couldn't keep like benefiting from cosplaying as a straight man. Yeah. And so 
I cried a bunch that day and then like started having conversations with people. And then that was a journey. But anyway, um, yeah, it was because of my intimacy with God and the dynamic exchanges that we've had that compelled me to finally embrace me for who I've been this whole time. Um, even though it was completely against everything in my culture. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing when you have those experiences with God where like God brings something up and is like, no, actually, what about this? And you're like, that does not fit my theology. Go away. Right. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I've done that too. And um, it's so easy to do when you're locked into that way of, that way of thinking where everything's right or wrong, where there's a whole lot of black and white. You don't cross this line, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then, yeah. but listening to your story, the, the thing that, I don't know if it made me laugh or cry really was, was, you know, you're in this role of teaching spiritual discernment and it's like, yeah, Mike, spiritual discernment. Yeah. No, not like that, Mike. You yeah. know, right. and it's like, oh, you know, and yet you're doing the same thing you'd been doing. And yet suddenly it was like, oh no, you can't, you can't do that. So hearing your story, the cost of coming out was obviously pretty high. We heard you say before, you know, all the things you're involved in, um, you you lost all of that. You lost your income, your speaking engagements for the year. Um, you lost friendships through it. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think anyone who's had anything to do with the church and the uh, LGBTQIA plus community will be any surprised about that at all. Um, yeah. So you've had all that negative stuff. Was there anything that surprised you from like a positive aspect on your coming out journey? Yeah. Um, there were a few surprises. Um, one of the surprises was the people who had left Bethel, but were in some kind of prominent position before when I came out and then they slid into my DMS or texted me and were like affirming, I was not expecting that. And so there were a few surprises of like just people who were, who had become affirming in their own journey or their own process. And they weren't public about it. But when I came out, you know, publicly, they showed up and were like, Hey, love what's happening. You know? And it was like, that was yeah, surprising cool. that happened. It wasn't a ton of people, but it was several people. And I was, yeah, that was, I wasn't expecting that. I also wasn't expecting there to be so many people doing like work in the queer, queer affirming theology space. Like there were many people and I've thankfully to the, today, like get to call several of them friends. Like I've gotten to connect with them and get to know them and become friends with them. And they've been so influential in my process. So that was a surprise. I didn't know that I was going to find these people and that they were going to be such quality, intelligent, informed, educated, advocating allies. I did not know that I was going to find these people along the way. If I had known that earlier, I probably would have come out. I wouldn't have needed a nudge from God to come out if I'd known there was so much legitimate support and accessibility, you know, but no, keep in mind. I also am aware, like I also have, there's a lot of privilege that I enjoy in this journey because of my platform and my background and my connections and influence that has opened doors for me to access people doing this work. I think in ways that not everyone who comes out is going to be able to experience. So part of my conviction in that process was like, I want to give access to what I've learned and what I've benefited from and what I've received from these people in this space. So I've just been shoving things out into the public as I could, but yeah, finding them was a surprise. I didn't know that that was going to be a thing. And I'm so thankful. It was, it's a game changer. Um, any other positive surprises? I've had a lot of alumni from the school that I taught at who came out in their own way and have their own horror stories come and message me and thank me for what I'm doing and share their horror stories and share the things that have impacted them that I've, you know, expressed or like shown and brought to light. And so that was like really cool too. I, 
maybe surprise is a wrong word because I assumed that would probably happen, but I didn't know who those people were. I didn't know who or when they'd show up or whatever. So it was, it's always a surprise when it happens, right? I knew in general, it's probably a thing, but when it happens, it's always like, whoa, you, I had no idea. Wow. It's, you know? Um, yeah, I think there are probably some other ones, but that's like some of the big, like positive surprises from it. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm gonna throw this one too. The level of like alignment to myself I've been able to experience on, on the other side of coming out was surprising. I did not realize how much trauma I had stored in my body around this and how much I had been giving up to stay in the closet. I didn't know how heavy and restrictive that existence was. And I cry about, like I cry when I talk about it almost every time because I think there are so many queer people now who are still in the church, still closeted, still didn't like denying themselves, still lying about their experience and still like buying into the delusion that God's going to change them or that they'll find the right person or that they just need enough therapy or they need to stay single for the rest of their life. All of, all of that, everything I just listed is a lie. And they don't even know, like maybe part of the grace in their journey is they have no idea what they're giving up in order to shoulder that impossible burden. Um, and so I'm so thankful that I got a chance to get out of that and get to experience not just my life, not just like romance or love or opportunities in those ways, just me getting to be free, breathable Mike. I was surprised at like the level of home I could experience in myself that I didn't realize I wasn't experiencing for so long. That was surprising. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really cool to hear that there's, that positivity around what was obviously like a really difficult time in a whole bunch of other ways. Yeah. I think one of the the things that attracted me to following your social media stuff was the fact that you, you kind of publicly shared some conversations that you had with people who were, you know, saying stuff to you on your page. And I mean, some of it was a bit, you you know, you were replying a bit tongue in cheek and stuff, but, but you also had this grace about you, um, which to be honest, you know, if I'd been through what you've been through, I don't know if I would have had that grace for those people, you know, and, and that's something that I've really appreciated about the way that you carry yourself is you're, you're not afraid to be, Hey, no, this is what I believe. And this is who I am. But, you know, I also used to believe this stuff and I can see why you think that, <laughs> even though I think you're wrong. Yeah. Um, but is that, that must be a really hard thing to, to have to keep constantly doing, is it? Yeah. I mean, it was, it comes and goes like there are waves. It's almost like, like when it rains, it pours, you know, when some people come at me, a lot of people come at me. And then there's actually been a few weeks now where I haven't gotten, I've hardly gotten negative comments. They're still there. Maybe I just don't notice them as much. Maybe that's part of the deal. I don't like, I don't see them anymore. Um, but yeah, I've definitely enjoyed a, a, a window of time lately of not having an overt amount of being called a devil worshiper or demon possessed or a false yeah. teacher, or I'm sending people to hell or whatever. Like I just, the amount of crazy stuff I've been accused of since coming out was shocking. And like, it got so extreme that it was like laughable. I'm like, this is absurd. Like yeah. what they're saying isn't true of any human being on the planet. What is happening? This is yeah. crazy. Um, so yeah, lately it's not been that. And now I'm like, Oh, am I doing something wrong? Like what's happening? Why is it not as like toxic and oppositional anymore? You know, it's gotten <laughs> yeah. kind of, I don't know about comfortable, but you know, like I've got a lot of great supporters and my comment section has been a lot like very positive lately. So yeah, I don't When it was happening though, there were a couple months there where my mental health definitely suffered. Um, I was depressed for a couple months. I don't think it was just because of the comments or whatever. There was like a lot of factors, but that was one of them. Yeah when you interact with people 
who share the same world as you, who genuinely don't want you to be here. Like that is a really painful thing to have to grapple with regularly. That's exhausting. And I think it's really unnatural. Like nobody should have to like wade through that. Um, so to do it on a public platform and have give like a, have access to so much hate is unnatural and unhealthy, I would say. So yeah. I had to learn a rhythm and like pace myself and like find ways to like care for look after me, like self care became an essential part of my survival. And so I learned some skills and some rhythms and like things that were really found some great tools and, you know, cultivated community in a more intentional way and all that. Um, so now I think I've like done a lot of work in that way and it doesn't hit me as much anymore. It rarely gets inside, which I'm thankful for because when it gets inside, man, that is a scary, painful place, but it's been a while. I think one of the first ones I ever saw was someone like saying like, how can you be a gay pastor? You know, uh, and you were just like, oh no, what should I do? Like, you should stop being gay. And you're like, okay, I just tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah. you just, yeah, the, the way that- Now, now what? I think was the Yeah, next totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and so oh, I guess we can laugh a little bit about that, but it, it does uncover this whole insidious side of the Christian world who claim to be built on love. And yet the love has to fit within a very specific box. Mm. And that's, I mean, this is coming from someone who, you know, I grew up very conservative and it's it's been a long journey for me to become an ally. So I know, you know, I know what people think in that space, but um, yeah, now it just breaks my heart looking at the church going, this is this is supposed to be a place of love. And then you're getting told you're demon possessed or you're the spawn of Satan, you know, like, like how, how could that be love, you know? And it just, Oh, it breaks my heart. Um, Have you found as you, you, you obviously started questioning your theology around this whole sort of space. Um, Have you found that once you started questioning this one area of theology and it started, you started seeing things differently that, you realized there was all these other areas of theology that you had questions about and you could start kind of asking those questions as well. Yes. Yes. My theology today is unrecognizable. Like, and I'm not saying that to be dramatic. Me three years ago would not recognize me today in terms of what I believe and what I don't believe anymore. It is shocking. Cause I was raised, I got saved at four, um, in the Baptist denomination and was such a quote unquote good Christian kid my whole life. So, and I believed this stuff and I taught this stuff and I was in theological spaces and wrestling this stuff out and whatever for years of my life. So um, to have asked the questions that I've asked and done the research and have changed my beliefs on the, at the level that has happened is shocking. Um. And the thing is, it's unavoidable. You can't, in my opinion, you cannot pay attention. You can't genuinely engage with, with like, let's, for example, where I started of doing the queer affirming theology work and not notice the other, uh, what, what are the words, like contradictions and harms and abuses. And anyway, um, it's not like these aren't isolated individual topics. They are interwoven it's this network of like belief system that if one thing pulls out then it starts to affect the uh, the validity and structure of the others stability of them right so 
yeah, I went down a pretty intense and aggressive deconstructive process after I had like become fully affirming in my theology with the Bible and all that. Um, and I knew it was coming. I was like, okay, the next thing is the Bible. And the thing after that is Jesus. And I could see it <laughs> yeah. like the writing on the wall. And I was just kind of like taking my time, especially cause I had people coming with me who were learning like a few steps behind me. And I was like, Oh God, I can see what's coming for me that I'm nervous about. They are not ready for this. How do I help them? How do I buffer this? How can I pace this journey and process we're going through in a way that's constructive for them, not harmful. Um, and it got slippery for a little bit there, right? We like didn't know which way was up and oh my God, who is Jesus and what is even true anymore? That was crazy for all of us. But yes, the answer is yes, I did. I deconstructed a lot. <laughs> I mean, for me, like I used to be in spaces where questions were frowned upon. Same. Uh, not as bad as some others. You know, I've, I know other people where they went to their pastor and asked a question because they read a verse and it didn't seem to align with what they'd been taught and they just said, I oh, just wondering about this. And they got told they had a, a demon of insubordination. And, you know, I was never in that kind of space, but, you know, questions weren't necessarily encouraged unless they were questions that got you deeper into the stuff you already believed. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I think, you know, questions and, and even doubts, doubts are actually essential to have any sort of faith. Cause if you don't have yeah. the doubts, you just never grow. You know, you, if you go, oh, I'm not sure about this. What do I think about that? You know, you're just yeah. never going to grow anywhere. Yeah, totally. um, so yeah, I mean, it's like, it's been my experience too, where you pull on one thread and they all start unraveling and, and yet that doesn't necessarily have to end up in a puddle on the floor where you've got nothing anymore. You know, that, I think that was the stereotype was if you start asking these questions, you're going to be left with nothing. So right. actually I feel like I'm left with a deeper love and a deeper connection in my faith than I've ever had, you know? Um, so yeah, great, great to hear that, that that's kind of your journey as well. Um, yeah. you mentioned there that you had a, like a bunch of people that were coming along this with you. And I've heard you talk about, um, your organization, um, and your team, uh, you, you had that team kind of journey with you before publicly coming out. How important was it for you to have that group of people and like, the fact that they came on the journey with you, even moving cities and things with you. What was that? What did that mean to you? Uh, everything. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I mean, here's, let me just say this as far as like acknowledging myself as an individual and how I've navigated my life, I've had a couple of Renaissance (laughs) phases of my journey. Um, so I would have done this journey with or without them that would have happened and I would have found my way through it and it would have, you know, like all that, that's all true. I believe that. I don't think that I would have died if I'd done it on my own, but having the people in my corner who came with me, go on this journey with me, um, they've become some of my closest friends. Some of them were already close friends. They've become dearer, closest, like some of my closest friends on the planet. Um, they were necessary at some of the parts of the journey that were so hard. Like if I'd done it alone, I would have had to go find other people or would have been calling people. And I've just had to labor in a lot more other ways than what I had to do because they were here. Um, so I'm so thankful for the commitment to the process that they brought, the courage, the trust, the humility, the, the resilience. Like they just, they were champions. It was amazing to watch that. And all of them were straight except for like two of them. But, and then one of them discovered that they weren't straight somewhere along the way, which was a whole other part of the journey, right? Yeah. For them. But yeah, um, it meant the world. It was so affirming and supportive and safe. And I watched myself get to, I, I think 
if I step away as objectively as I'm capable of being observing my own life, I got to where I am today, probably as I would say as quickly as I did because of how supported I was. I think that I took what seems like is years of people's lives going on this journey and getting to where I've gotten. Um, I did that in a shorter amount of time and probably because of the level of support I had along the way. I think that incubation of support and safety really accelerated my process and gave me like courage to take greater risks than I would have on my own in some ways than I went slower in other ways because of them. Right. But because of love and care. So, um, I think big picture, it helped me go faster and get deeper quicker. Right. Um, but I think I haven't even seen the impact of what that has been, you know, I think years down the road, it'll be even more evident how their involvement and proximity to this process for me impacted my journey that I can't see right now. Yeah. So this organization, Numa, you, you actually started it back in Reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, I guess, what, what was it when you started and how has that morphed into what it is today? <laughs> oh God, I hate this question. Um, <laughs> just because it's cringy. It was so Numa, the Greek word Numa is the word for breath or spirit. Um, it's used in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. But basically spirit. Um, and so I took that word and changed the spelling of it and that became the brand and whatever uh, logo of my company. So we were a spiritual intelligence organization. So we taught, like, I taught principles and created tools and content for people to go deeper down the road of the gift of discernment and also just spiritual intelligence and spiritual hygiene in general. Um, and there was just a lot of lexicon, I think, and verbiage I brought to the table that was fresh and different than anything we'd heard in Christianese yeah. that people were hungry and thirsty for because there was so much more depth to our ability to discern than I think was often taught, let alone practice within the layperson's church experience. Um, so that was like the crux of that organization. We did a lot of like coaching and I did a lot of speaking and courses and classes and things. Um, and then when I came out, uh, that audience changed. And then when I deconstructed, that content had to change, right? So I kind of yeah. put all that old stuff on ice. It's so weird. We had all these archives of videos and whatever. And we just like had to archive a bunch of this stuff. I'm like, okay, that may never see the light of day again. And that might be a good thing for all of us. Let's put that away. And so now Numa. I don't think people recognize that name because I don't put it out as much anymore, but it's still, everything we do is still under the umbrella of this organization. And now, you know, we mostly work with deconstructing people and then queer people recovering from an evangelical background. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is on your website. This is what you say about oh God. the organization uh, here. So this is your mission. Here at NUMA, it is our mission to detoxify Christian spirituality. We work to expel supremacy and imperialism from theology, defend the marginalized among us, and increase spiritual intelligence. We provide coaching, mentorship groups, and streamed content. We hope you join us as we create a more beautiful world. Honestly, reading that makes me so excited. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you you want to detoxify Christianity. Um, I mean... I'm guessing that wasn't even a thing on your radar not that long ago. What does that look like for you? Wow, thanks. Yeah, um, it's a unique question I've not been asked before. Um, well, I guess in a lot of ways, it firstly looks like tackling what I would deem harmful theology and like pulling it apart. 
And that's, I think what I meant by the detoxify word in that whole bio or whatever. Uh, there's so much harm that's done from bad theology. So many people are kept from intimacy with God because of bad theology. Um, so many people don't know God, in my opinion, and the way, whatever it is that means to me because of bad theology. And there were like, when I first started experiencing the person of God in my life, I remember the first experience, I was a basket case. I was weeping and the level of like comprehension I got from that exchange was minimal. I, there wasn't a ton of like intelligible, if you will, information that I was able to retain. It was mostly me just getting pummeled by the nature of God and the fact that I could even just have intimacy with this person. I didn't know any of it. So it was overwhelming. The second time was eight months later and there was like, Again, my experience, you don't need to believe me or whatever, but this is just from what I experienced, literal communication from God that was affirming me as a gay person when there was nothing in my world and nothing in my theology that suggested that as a possibility. And yet the spirit of God was speaking to me in that place. And I heard them and I heard them, you know, as accurately as um, I was hearing them later, that was like a different experience. And then I notice after the, after that several experiences later as my theology loosened and expanded and brightened, if you will, um, my ability to handle being in that position and experience God in that way, um, changed. Like I would, I had more capacity and I had, I could handle the impact and not like fall apart. It was still impactful and devastating, <laughs> but I wasn't like, incoherent later, right? Like I could kind of pick myself up and participate, if you will. So to me, like the theology piece is such a major factor in people's spiritual wholeness. I don't care what belief or religion you're part of. If your theology, if your belief around the divine is based on bigotry and b violence and bias and classism and what, like all these other things that have crept their way into evangelical church, like culture, that's going to have some really negative impacts on how you see yourself, your ability to show up in your spirituality and whatever that looks like. Uh, so we put a lot of energy toward providing resources and space for people to navigate. What would it look like if I didn't believe that I'm a piece of garbage sinner? Like what if that wasn't true anymore? What if Adam and Eve weren't literal human beings and this wasn't a historical document about the origin of the world we live in and it's actually like a poem and there's like mythology yeah. to this and we're actually supposed to take some, right? What if we started asking these kinds of questions and like listen to academics and theologians and historians who take the text seriously and don't just, anyway, like yeah. that's a whole different journey with different conclusions and it also is so liberating and empowering in your relationship with God. And I've been very desirous, especially in my public ministry, you know, when I was in the circuit and going hard in the Bethel world, I really wanted to work with powerful people. I, I was so disappointed with how powerless church people behaved and believed. Like they just continued to show up like spectators and baby birds. And it bothered me. And I'm like, I'm not mad at them. I'm mad at whatever it is we're doing that's creating people like this. Like this, we are doing a disservice. This is not how Jesus was impacting people. I have a problem with how disempowered people are, are showing up in these conferences I'm going to. Like something's wrong. Yeah. Um, I hated that. So um, on the other side of deconstructing, I'm noticing it actually demands 
responsibility and ownership and power from the individual to go on this journey. And I really like that. I like the responsibility going up on an individual level for people as they touch, you know, profound ideas like God and the afterlife and atonement. And that's a big deal. So I don't know if I'm answering the question anymore, but yeah. these are the things that are coming No, up. I mean, I, th- oh, I totally agree. I think it's so much easier to have black and white boundaries about who's in and who's out and then not have to care about those people. Um, right. You know, totally. the, one of the, the starting of all the threads unraveling for me was I actually did a master's of theology and, and one of the passages I studied was the good Samaritan. So I spent like nine months looking at the good Samaritan story and it just undid me, you know, that, um, this was about someone who was marginalized and hated and despised being the hero of the story while the ones who knew all the right things missed the boat, you know? Um, and, and yet I was, it was, I was a quite comfortable middle-class white Christian, you know, I was, I was quite happy in that space, but I couldn't be anymore after that. So, um, but I found it's a lot harder work, you know, to, to love people who aren't like you, um, people who, you know, believe differently, who think differently. It's actually really hard. Um, but it's so worth it. You know, you, you just find so much beauty in the connections there and, um, yeah, yeah, it's such a fruitful journey. So, uh, yeah, stoked to hear that that's yeah, kind totally. of your experience as well. As we get near the end, what do you love most about what you do? Um, one of the first things that comes up for me is I love getting to work with queer people who don't yet know that they're allowed to have a whole experience as a human being. Um especially from the theology side of things, just because that was my journey. So I love getting to pull from my own pain and my own sacrifices and my, the, the resources and tools and work that I've done. I'm really thankful that I get to use that as not just like liberating myself, but like getting to see greater results than just my own freedom from that. Um, that's really fun for me. It's really rewarding. Uh, fun feels kind of cheap. It's really deep. It's deeply rewarding because I know what it was like to be in that trap. Like, not just the culture and whatever, like trapped within yourself because of what you believed was true. Like that is a scary place to face if, you know, anyway. so getting to help people in that space is really rewarding for me. I'm really, I love doing that. Secondarily, I love helping people, you know, like straight people change their mind. The ones who are genuinely curious and bring humility, humility to the table and are willing to do work, but genuinely want to understand what's the truth here. I love yeah. working with people like that. Um, I don't even necessarily need them to change their mind or like agree with me. That's obviously ideal. I prefer that. But if they're honest and genuine and at least like respectful in how they go about trying to understand, I love at least trying to help them and like provide experience and like resource and whatever. Um, and then beyond that, like I love getting to be a voice in this space, holding the identity and story and background that I do getting to like reshape some of these narratives that have been out there for so long and like change what we even know because how much of what people assume and judge is actually based on narratives they were told not any research they'd done or experiences they'd had it was just like regurgitated rhetoric that they inherited somewhere probably from their pastor um so like getting to embody something different and represent like actually that 
convenient little theology piece you have, it doesn't erase me. I'm still here. Guess what? I'm still living my life. I'm still doing the thing. Um, so that is really rewarding because it feels like I get to stand up and advocate for little me and the little me's everywhere that didn't have somebody like this. I'm not the only one doing this, right? But in the space that I'm in, I love getting to bring it in the areas of influence that I hold and push back the tide of bigotry and ignorance. Um, that's an honor and a privilege. And I, I love doing it. Yeah. I, that's, that's what I would say. I can yeah. keep going, but those are probably the big ones. Uh, and, and I want to say you do an amazing job of it too. That it's, Thank you. Thank you. it's, um, yeah, it's such a privilege to kind of be on the journey with you, you know, as you share all the stuff on your platforms and things. Lastly, I'm on a journey to, you know, figure out how to be a good ally. Um, that's, you know, my my journey in, in all of this. From your perspective, and obviously you can't speak for the whole queer community, but for you as a gay man, like what do you want from allies, particularly in a church space? You know, what? how can we best support the queer community yeah, great question. So, I mean, I mean, I'm going to try and make this short. There's so <laughs> totally, many ways. Totally. Yeah, last question while we're wrapping up. No. <laughs> right, right. And it would also, my answer depends on who I'm talking to, right? So, if I'm talking to church leaders, I'm like, hire queer people, put queer people in leadership, give them positions of influence. Um, obviously, like qualified people, but get some queer voices going in the conversation, in the representation, give them power, give them access, give them, you know, influence. Um, and then like for people in general, like regardless of position or like structure or organization, I think a good litmus test for, are you standing up for, are you caring for, are you supporting queer people in your life? Um, it's something like this. I was at a festival last week and a friend of mine, she's a, she's a, the lead singer of a famous CC, a Christian music like band, um, who is been on her own deconstruction journey and has become an ally in the last year or so. And so we've become friends. Anyway, she was at a table talk I was doing with some people and she physically demonstrated what she feels like she's doing with her platform today. And she like kind of stood up and got in, like almost sat on top of me, like blocking me from the haters. Right. And she's like, you will cannot do that to him. She's kind of demonstrating that. And then afterwards, somebody came up to me and asked a question about what was talked about at the table. And she was crying and, you know, sharing her story. And then she asked, like, that woman who stood up, was that your sister? And, like, we look nothing alike. <laughs> I was like, no, that's a friend of mine. Um, but I think that question, that accusation, if you will, to me is indicative of how much of an ally this woman demonstrates herself to be. And I'm like, that's what you want to be experiencing. Um, as an ally, I would try to think less of what is enough and like you'll know when you're showing up for queer people, when you're getting the same kind of hate and backlash and discrimination that they're experiencing. Um, if that's not happening, you're probably not advocating loudly enough is what I would say. Um, a mentor stand would say, um, maybe don't call yourself an ally if you're not getting hit with the same rocks that the people you're supporting are getting hit with. If you're not getting hit, you're not standing close enough. Yeah, um, well. Right. Metaphorically. So I think that's a really helpful litmus test. If people are trying to figure out like, how do I show up? What's enough? Like, what does it look like for me to actually fill this space? I'm like, I don't know if there's an easy answer for that, but, um, relationally, if you are insulated from or separate from what it means to be a queer person today, and you don't experience the same kind of backlash, then you're probably not speaking up. You're probably not loud enough. You're probably not visible enough. You're probably not stepping in. 
Um, and it's really easy not to do that. Even as a, as a gay person, there are times where I like easily slip back into the closet because it's easier and convenient. But, you know, and I have to catch myself when I'm doing that. I'm like, that's my bro, show up. Like, what are you doing? Right. And so I can't imagine as an ally how much more of a challenge that would be. Um, so like to me, I'm like, if you're for starters, get around queer people. If you don't have relationships with people who are queer, you need to find queer friends. And I don't mean like a token person you yeah, use totally. that you can claim, right? Proximity to. I mean, get to know this these people, like do life with them play sports with them, have meals with them, have movie nights and game nights with them, go on walks with them, like do life with them, get to know them. And so like from there, you will be confronted by the things you don't get. You don't understand the things you've never experienced before. It will be uncomfortable. And I'm like, cool. The learning that you're uncomfortable with that is really important. It's an important part of the journey. Lean into that. Um, don't blame the person who is exposing your own discomfort and insecurity. Instead, lean in and figure out why you're uncomfortable. Where is that coming from? Take responsibility for that and, and do the work, right? And that's a huge part of, I think, anyone becoming an ally is you need proximity to queer people. You need to witness their lives and you need to be affected by them on a human level. This is not an idea that you're like postulating yeah. around. These are people who exist right now who have experienced a lot, who currently still experience a lot of pain and discrimination in our world. And if it's not moving you, it's probably because you're just not close enough. You're just not aware. So I think um, having relationships with people like us is going to be really sobering and eye-opening yeah. and will provoke the compassion and the drive for you to do the work it's going to take to actually like show up for us. Um, so I'm kind of thinking more, I'm speaking more to the ethos, right, of it, but like that will in and of itself translate into all kinds of prescriptive actions that I don't feel like I need to put on anybody. You'll know, right? Like if you haven't shown up, you'll feel it. But if you're still so removed from it, then you won't. And then like that, the issue might not be how you're doing or what you're doing or not doing. It might be how disconnected you are from que the queer person's experience. That would probably be yeah. how I answer that. Oh, thank you so much for that challenge. Cause you know, yeah. that that's really important for us to hear. And yeah, for mm -hmm. those of us who want to be legitimate supporters I think that's a really great way to, to think about it and to think about how we're um, interacting with people. Um, yeah, thank you for that challenge. So um, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate you um, taking the time out. Glad we could make the time differences work. Um, yeah. And yeah, thank you for all you're doing, not just, I guess, for yourself and your own space. Although, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you're, you're becoming more you, you know. Um, but thank you for then sharing that with the world because it's such a gift. And, you know, like you say, you had the privilege of the platform, but then you chose to use it. And so that's such a gift to the world. And thank you for who you are and what you do. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. Yeah. Andy, thanks for having me. I'm honored to have been on your podcast. And thanks for these keen insightful questions or several questions here I've not been asked before in interviews. So like that felt really fun to get to like answer that. Thank you. Hello. So that was my conversation with Mike Myshiro. What an amazing guy. So full of love and compassion for people. Mike, thank you for who you are and for what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Mike, 
May your life on this side of coming out continue to blossom and grow in ways you never expected. May you continue to be drawn into the expansiveness of the love of God for you and for all who you come across. As you journey alongside others who are wrestling with how their whole selves fit with what they've been taught, may you have wisdom and grace in abundance. And may you be inspired and encouraged as their lives become fuller and they find more of who they truly are. May you continue to find yourself surrounded by great people in your work and in your play. And may they continue to demonstrate love to you in ways that nurture and energise you to be all the you that you can be. May you enjoy the journey of exploring potential romantic relationships now that you've allowed yourself to truly feel your feelings. May you be filled with anticipation and excitement, curiosity and wonderings as you explore what the future might hold for you in that space. And as you connect with people on a whole different level, may you know the joy that is found in the freedom to be yourself. As you continue to advocate publicly for those who are so condemned by much of the church, may you find encouragement in the stories of those who find a home in your platforms. And may your skin grow thick to the attacks of the hateful. May you know that your work is changing lives all around the world, in ways and on a scale that you may never know. Lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when we continue the conversation about queer folk in the church with something a little bit different. Uh, recently, I was privileged to be a small part of a day of workshops in Tauranga for people exploring sexuality and faith. Afterwards, I sat down with the main speaker for the day, Amanda Pilbrow, and we talked over the day and some of the key takeaways for us. We talk about theology, Amanda's journey that changed her beliefs, the importance of questions and doubts in the life of faith, and so much more. So join me in a couple of weeks for that. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa, kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga, kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua, kia rite anō ki tō te rangi. Humai kia mātou ai nei, he taroma mātou mō tēnei rā. Muro mātou hara, me mātou hoki e muru nei, i o te hunga, e hara ana kia mātou. Aua hoki mātou e kawea, kia whakawaia, e ngari whakorangia mātou i te kino.